This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Welcome back to 15-Minute History. I'm your host, Samantha Rose Rubino, a PhD student with the Department of History at the University of Texas. Today, we have the pleasure of interviewing one of our very own 15-Minute History hosts, Christopher Rose. Welcome, Christopher. Thank you. Chris Rose is a doctoral student in the Department of History at the University of Texas at Austin. He studies the medieval and early modern Arab world, focusing on the interactions of colonial power, medicine, and public space in 19th century Egypt. So today we're going to be talking about a very hot news topic, Chris, right? Absolutely. Um, The Birmingham Quran. Can you tell us a little bit more about what it is? The Birmingham Quran, which is named because the formal title for the manuscript in question is Manuscript Mingana 1572A. What a beautiful name. It in the Cadbury Research Library of the University of Birmingham in England, which is why it's become known as the Birmingham Quran. It's a little sexier title. Over the summer made headlines because it had been carbon dated to between 568 and 645 of the Christian era, which basically means that it uh, is among the oldest Koran manuscripts known to exist. uh, And those dates roughly mirror the lifespan of the Prophet Muhammad himself. So this is a really important find uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, Some people may also be familiar with the fact that there are a number of sensational headlines uh, saying that the Quran actually predated Muhammad. I think that's rather unlikely, and we'll talk about that a little later on. But it definitely makes it one of the the oldest Quranic manuscripts known to exist. So can you talk a little bit about what the traditional narrative of how the Quran was compiled and, you know, what kind of went into that and what makes this different? The traditional narrative is that uh, the Quran was revealed by God to Muhammad um, during the period of his ministry, which is the years 610 to 632 uh, of the Christian era. According to tradition, the Quran was not written down in its entirety during Muhammad's lifetime. Some of the surahs, which are the equivalent of uh, a chapter of the Bible or a book of the Bible, were written down. But there are discrepancies even about the number of people who memorized the book in its entirety while he was still alive. Uh, There's one source that says six people memorized it, but then only actually names four of them. Hmm. Uh, There's a second source that says no one memorized it in its entirety. Various people had segments of it. But the sort of uniform uh, accounting is that the book was not written down while he was still alive. This is a very oral culture. Pre-Islamic Arabia had a tradition of epic poetry and as, as we'll see even in a bit, uh, the Arabic alphabet itself had only been in use for about a century at this time and hadn't even developed to the point of being able to distinguish letters from one another. Uh, it, it really sort of took the form of sheet music. It was supposed mm-hmm. to be a guide for oral recitation. The story goes that after a serious battle, uh, the Battle of Yamama in the year 633, uh, Omar ibn al-Khattab, who became the second caliph, encouraged Abu Bakr, who was the first caliph or or the leader of the Islamic community after Muhammad died, to have the Quran compiled because so many of the people who knew it had been killed in the battle. And uh, the generations were getting older. Uh, You know, both men at this point were of advanced age. Abu Bakr would actually die the following year. And so there was a real concern as to what would happen as this generation began to die off. 
Abu Bakr did have it written down on various leaves of, you know, we're told it was things like palm leaves and camel bone. And the collection wound up in the possession of Omar's daughter, Hafsa, who was also one of Muhammad's widows. It wasn't actually compiled into a book that was widely distributed until 650. Again, this is according to the traditional narrative, under the reign of the third caliph, Othman, because there were concerns about variant readings taking place, that uh, some of the text was being a little bit embellished. At this point, the uh, Islamic State had expanded out of Arabia. You know, people couldn't make it back to Medina for daily prayers or, you know, we can serve it. So, you know, there was less control about what was going on out in, in, the, in the new provinces. And so it was decided that there needed to be a definitive version of the text that was compiled into what has become known as the Othmanic Codex, and all other versions of it were burned. According to the tradition, seven copies were made, and they were distributed to key centers throughout the growing empire. However, even among these seven copies, there were variant readings. As I mentioned, the problem at the time was that anybody who's seen Arabic knows that some of the letters have dots, and those are used to distinguish one form from another. Well, those weren't actually added until after this. So at the time, like I said, the closest analogy is sheet music. You were supposed to already know the text, and you could recite it based on this prompt. But even within this, there's room to accidentally mess up a consonant, in addition to the fact that uh, short vowels are not written in Arabic at all. Similar to what happened in Hebrew with the Jewish scriptures, they eventually come up with, uh, in the next 150 years, a method to demarcate short vowels. But even then, there are still seven accepted readings of the Quran. Um, and uh, even the existence of various, sometimes consonantal readings, were existed and commented on through Islamic history. It wasn't actually until 1923 that a group of Egyptian scholars compiled what they felt was the definitive version of the Quran, and they destroyed all other copies that they had access to. And today, if you go out and you purchase a Quran, nearly everyone you're likely to find is this version that was basically authorized in Cairo in 1923. So that leads me to another question that we have when you're speaking about the compilation of traditional narratives of the Quran. What about the scholarly narrative? How was that compiled? How have they envisioned, you know, the struggle between different um, interpretations or meanings of it? Well, that's a really interesting question, and it's kind of complicated. And unfortunately, especially since uh, 2001, it's become very political. Mm. To be a non-Muslim scholar who upholds some of this traditional narrative is to be an apologist for Islam. To be a non-Muslim scholar who criticizes the traditional narrative is to be a revisionist um, who is attacking Islam. So, you know, there's a political dimension that underlines a lot of what's going on today. And in fact, even with some of the, the headlines that came out about the um, Birmingham Quran itself, I remember one of the articles was in a, a British tabloid newspaper. I, I won't name it. Um, it rhymes with fail. <laughs> but uh, it's... Um, Every scholar arguing that uh, the Quran clearly predated Muhammad had a British, white, British, Anglo name, um, and everyone who argued that this couldn't possibly be was clearly Muslim. You know, so they, they set it up as this dichotomy. Up until uh, the six, 1960s and 1970s, though, most Western scholars really kind of accepted and worked with that traditional narrative of not only of Muhammad's life, but also of how the Quran came to be. 
And what's problematic about this, and I talked about this when we did the episode with Fred Donner last year, link on the website, is that there's not a lot of historical evidence that is contemporary to the time. Mm-hmm. You find uh, texts that claim to be biographies of the prophet, uh, most of which are copies of things that say they were written earlier, but all we have are the copies, most of which date from the 9th, 10th century. So in terms of documents that Muhammad would have written or that Muhammad signed his name to or that any of the first four caliphs signed their names to, we don't have those. So we have a lot of reports, and from this, sacred narrative is constructed. Probably the first, and I don't want to say it was the first challenge, the first real attention-grabbing challenge to that traditional narrative was a book called Hagarism, which was written in the 1970s by a Danish scholar, Patricia Krona, and a British scholar, Michael Cook. And I actually had a discussion with uh, some scholars on Twitter about whether or not Hagarism was really a serious attempt at scholarship or it was an intellectual exercise in um, if you look at all of the documentation that is clearly contemporary. This is how far you can push this traditional story. Um, And it is quite a story that they spin. Basically, um, Hagarism presents early Islam as a movement of Messianic Judaism, that Muhammad is a renegade Messianic Jew. Uh, They're referred to as Hagarenes, the early community, because they are um, from Abraham's concubine, Hagar. And, uh, you know, it really challenges the traditional narrative. Well, the book was universally panned when it came out, mostly by traditional scholars or people who upheld the traditional narrative saying, this is not possible. And my sense really is that the two of them were saying, look, if you want to stick to this traditional narrative, prove that it's true. Just don't take it on face value. And this is where I would say that the modern field of critical studies of early Islam and critical Quranic studies really begins. There were people working on it, but this was the sort of spark that really caught fire and moved on. Working around the same time uh, as a British scholar, John Wansborough, who in reading the Quran and his analysis, his hypothesis is that the Quran could not have existed prior to the ninth century of the Christian era, which is about 150 years later than the traditional dating, which has a clear uh, version in place by the mid-seventh century. The flip side of this is a German scholar, Christoph Luxemburg, This is a a pseudonym who wrote a book basically stating that the Quran is actually a compilation of texts that were originally written in Syriac. Syriac is a more modern version of a late dialect of Aramaic, which was the lingua franca in the Middle East before Arabic. Syriac was an important uh, liturgical language for Christians in what became greater Syria, and it was an important literary language. So his hypothesis is that the Quran predates Muhammad as a collection of other texts that were basically morphed from Syriac into Arabic. And in fact, part of his argument uh, suggests that terms that scholars don't understand in the Quran are actually better read in Syriac. This made headlines about 15 years ago when the book came out because he suggested that 
I think one of the most famous passages, even to people who've never read the Quran, is uh, the one where if you die and go to heaven as a martyr, you get 72 virgins. And he oh, said yeah. this is actually better read as 72 small white grapes, because that's what the word he claimed meant in Syriac. This has also been widely discredited, uh, mainly for two reasons, one of which is, I'm not a linguist, but apparently his grasp of Syriac grammar is loose and flexible, um, to put it kindly. The other is that the Quran has almost universally been identified as definitely having an origin in Western Arabia, and Syriac was not a major language in Western Arabia in the 7th century. So there's a bit of a time gap going on there as well. Part of the broader issue with the idea of quote-unquote revisionist Quranic scholarship is that it covers everything from, you know, Krona and Cook to there have been some uh, authors have suggested that Muhammad never lived, that uh, he's just sort of a phantom that was made up, that the drama of early Islam didn't actually take place in Mecca, or at least not the Mecca that we know, that it must have taken place someplace closer to Gaza. So similar discussions that we see with Christianity exactly, too, surrounding Jesus. Exactly, you know, um, and because I think at some point there have been questions about whether every prophet has existed. Abraham's existence is questioned, Moses's existence, the Buddha's existence, you know, Jesus as well, at some point or another. And by and large, most serious scholars, you know, it's almost the same argument for Muhammad that it is for Jesus, which is that there's a lot of trace evidence that somebody did something that people took a fancy to. You know, it would involve a combination of mass amnesia and massive conspiracy theory for this to happen. And the problem with that is the documentation will always turn up at some point. So there are other questions about Muhammad's life we'll get to in a moment. But um, revisionism has kind of gotten an ugly name because it can go everything from these very, very wild theories to merely things of, for example, questioning whether or not dates that are not set in stone are in fact the dates that things happened moving them a couple years in each direction. So, you know, it can go all ways. But this is very much an ongoing uh, conversation, and the Birmingham Quran sort of comes up at just the right time to fit into it. Well, and this is a perfect segue kind of into what the Birmingham Quran does. Does it prove or disprove any of the scholarship that you've just discussed here? Um, what do you kind of see as the connections, and what really made this the big story that it was? Well, the dating was definitely the biggest story. We only have a few other manuscripts that date from this era. A few years ago, there was an archaeological team um, renovating the Great Mosque in Sana'a in Yemen, and they discovered a group of palimpsests. Those are parchments that have been written, cleaned off, and then rewritten on, because parchment is very expensive. Mm -hmm. And those have been dated to prior to 671, and they do reveal some consonantal variations. Now, depending on who you talk to, they're either major or minor. Mm. You know, the, the order of the suras is different from the order that appeared in the Uthmanic Codex. We don't, by the way, have a copy of the Uthmanic Codex, or at least one that's reliably mm. dated to him. There is one that is known as the Samarkand Kufic Quran. It's actually now in a shrine in Tashkent in Uzbekistan. Uh, I saw it a few years ago. I, I actually had the, the opportunity to travel to Uzbekistan, and it is a coffee table-sized book. Oh, wow. It is probably about a meter and a half wide when it's opened. The type is large, and it is smeared with a rust-colored substance, which um, is, of course, according to legend, stated to be the 
the blood of Uthman himself. They say this is the copy that he was reading while he was when he was assassinated Murdered, in, yeah. his, in his apartment. You know, that's probably not true. The writing suggests that it's probably from the late 8th or early 9th century uh, AD. The Topkapa manuscript, which is the one that's at Topkapa Palace in Istanbul, is also probably later. So really, it's down to this manuscript from Birmingham. There are other leaves from the same manuscript in France, and then the ones in Sana'a that are the earliest. And they're much more fully formed than we might expect for a text that was still being put together. The divisions between the surahs are there. By divisions, I mean they have names, there are decorations that separate them. These are things that we didn't expect to find until later. Mm. Um, So it appears to be a, a relatively fully formed text, not the one that's still being experimentally put together within the time frame that it was claimed to have been written. And assuming that it isn't a palimpsest, and that is definitely a question, it would put to rest the idea that the Quran was authored after the middle of the 7th century. Um, so definitely not the 9th, definitely not the 8th. There were two likely contenders, one of which is one of the first Umayyad caliphs at the end of the century, around 700, the other uh, being the, the idea that it didn't come together until the Abbasid Empire working out of Baghdad in the 9th century. And it would appear that um, they uh, the the Quran was in its full form prior to that. So that's definitely something that we can get out of this scholarship. That uh, the order hasn't changed terribly much, even when we talk about consonantal variations between this and and the, and the Sanaa manuscripts and the standard Quran. We're talking about things like shifting from the third person to the first person, or shifting singular to plural, or sometimes a pronoun will change. But by and large, the structure is surprisingly intact. You know, so it depends on how much you you, you want to focus on things like, you know, those minor consonantal variations and, and decide whether they're major or minor. But most people don't think that they're that spectacular, really. So you pointed to a little earlier in our conversation that it raised a lot of additional questions, right? Can you tell us about some of those questions that it raised? Give us some more detail. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so... One of the things that uh, the Birmingham Quran's dating uh, suggests is an early compilation date for the text. And in fact, it's a little too early. If the carbon dating is accurate, and, and I do have to pause here and just say that that is a huge if. Carbon dating is notoriously, it's not an exact science. It gives you a range of dates and a, and a probability that, for example, there's a 5 or 10% probability that it was before 568 and a 5 to 10% probability that it was after 645. But, you know, the bell curve, if you will, should appear within those two dates. But things as, as varied as the conditions it was stored under. And again, whether or not it's a palimpsest, whether this is a parchment that was cleaned off. What this also tells us, and I I do just have to point this out, is it doesn't actually date the book. It dates when the animal whose skin is the parchment was killed. Now, parchment was expensive, so it's reasonable to assume that it would have been used immediately, but not necessarily. It's not necessarily a foregone conclusion. So, like I said, if the carbon dating is accurate, it does suggest that the Quran might date to earlier than those original Uthmanic dates. Um, certainly 650 is right at the tail end of the period that, that it's likely to have been written. It does give some credence to the possibility that it was compiled under Abu Bakr, or it might have been compiled under Muhammad himself. Now, one of the things that this also raises into question is whether or not we need to rethink the dates of Muhammad's ministry. 
Traditionally, he received his first revelation in the year 610, but there's a question mark there. It looks like it might have been retrofitted back in at a later point. Like this was a local event in his family. Nobody really recorded what date it happened because uh, he was 40 years old. And 40, if you're familiar with the Abrahamic uh, tradition, 40 is is a number of significance. It's the number of days Noah was on the ark. It's the number of years the Israelites wandered in the wilderness. 40 is a year after which things have changed dramatically. It's a purification number. Um, and it's entirely possible that this date was decided on. Pretty much, you know, what we know about it is that his wife Khadija was still alive. And by the time of the, the migration, to Medina, the Hedra, and which is dated to 622, she had passed away. But again, it's not set in stone. And so this is one of those, one of the question marks. The idea that the Quran uh, predates Muhammad is within the realm of possibility if one accepts the traditional dating of his life. Um, but it's also among the more unlikely scenarios. If we want to accept that the Quran was a fully composed text. Now, the idea that parts of it might have come from things that predated him is still up for debate, and, and people do debate that. But, you know, uh, the idea that it was a fully formed book that we didn't have a copy of prior to Muhammad's life, and now all of a sudden we have a copy of it, is probably not true. Now, uh, the other thing that this early composition raises questions about is that there are facets of this text that are unknown even by early scholars. There are the groups of what are called mysterious letters. A number of chapters of the Quran begin with letters that stand on their own, Aleph, Lam, Mim, Raha, that their significance isn't known. Chapters that begin, or surahs that begin with these letters tend to be grouped together. Overall, the Quran is arranged with Surah Al-Fatiha, which is kind of a confessional prayer, and then the next one is the longest surah, and then it's arranged longest to shortest. It's not chronological. However, there are exceptions, and those exceptions tend to be where these mysterious, but nobody mm -hmm. quite knows what their significance is. There's also the question of who the Sabi'un are. The, the Sabi'un are this group of people who are said to be people of the book who can be saved on Judgment Day along with Jews, Christians, and Zoroastrians, but nobody knows who they are. Even in the 7th century or the 8th century when, when scholars were, they, they nobody knew who these people were. And so, you know, there's this issue as well is the reason that nobody knows what they were is because now the book was written early. And by the time it started to be studied in, in earnest, people had forgotten or there'd been a changeover. There does seem to be, interestingly enough, the possibility of a gap around 70 years long between the mid-7th century and about the year 700, during which the Quran does not seem to have been the core text for Muslims. It does not seem to have been the primal focus of prayer. Portions of it were, but not the book as a whole. It doesn't seem like memorization uh, by everybody was an issue. So but what would have been in place That's of that? That's the question that mm -hmm. we need to answer. Is uh, This will probably be the focus of a lot of scholarly attention. My off-the-cup hypothesis, which has absolutely no basis in any scholarship whatsoever, is that this is a period when the Islamic State was rapidly expanding. People were far and wide, you know, and if they didn't have somebody in their army or in their base camp who knew the text in its entirely, they had to go with what they knew. Mm. Um, and one of the early Umayyad caliphs really did make an attempt to get the text out to everybody. This is the one who was actually believed to have, uh, by some, to have actually perhaps authored or compiled it instead of both men, because his name is all over these manuscripts. Um, now we can say that it was compiled earlier, but maybe one of the reasons why he did this is because he realized that 
the the text had lost its primacy and people were starting to to move in different directions in terms of the way they were practicing uh, what at that point was in the process of, of transforming from proto-Islam in, into Islam as we understand it. And that's a big question mark. And I'm probably going to get a lot of, of, of nasty messages from scholars who work on early Islam saying, oh my gosh, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. But that's my contribution to the scholarship. Um, but I, I do just want to wrap up by uh, with, with actually something that Patricia Crona, who passed away uh, earlier this summer, said, which is that in her opinion, based on the scholarship, and of course she was writing in 2008, is that most importantly, we can be reasonably sure that the Quran is a collection of utterances that Muhammad made in the belief that they had been revealed to him by God. And to me, I think that's the most fair beginning point for any study of of the text. Well, thank you, Chris. We appreciate this in-depth look into the Birmingham Quran. um, And stay tuned for more 15-minute history. You can find a transcript of this episode, along with supplemental documents, suggestions for further reading, and correlations to this Texas and National Educational Standards for History and Geography on our website, blogs.utexas.edu backslash 15-minute history. That's the numerals 1-5-minute history. You can also find a link to suggest topics for upcoming episodes. The University of Texas at Austin is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in episodes of 15-minute history do not represent the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.